the next episode of Nerd Clicks and Chill will start in three, two, one, zero. Hey everybody, this is Nick. And this is Carrie. And we are Nerd Flicks and Chill. It's time for another one of our Westworld episode recaps. And this is going to be Season 2, Episode 5, Akane no Mai. Gets us out of Westworld for a little bit and gets us to explore Shogun World. So a lot of people were really excited about this episode, uh, myself included. Yeah, this was one of the episodes uh, that I heard heard that I read a little bit about uh, before the season started that I knew and I, I mentioned this I think it was last week a little bit that I knew that there was an episode coming up that was going to be subtitled it was going to be mostly in Japanese and it was going to be in Shogun World I didn't know anything other than that and I knew right away it was going to be something that I loved and I was right yeah yeah I mean I, I'm a I'm a Big fan of the work of Akira Kurosawa, and this episode is so much of an homage to Kurosawa uh, and the visual style that he had as a filmmaker. So this was in my wheelhouse, and I think it's a great episode. I know there's been a little bit of, like, I don't know, I guess you could call it debate about uh, how much this episode advances the plot of season two. Uh, I think it does, maybe not as much, but I do think that this is a lot of escapism into this, into this other world. So, uh, I didn't have those issues with it being something that doesn't advance the story much. I didn't have an issue with it just because of the fact that I, I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed so much of what they did in this from the music, from the makeup effects. Oh my God. To, um, mm-hmm. you know, the costuming and, and, and set design and everything. I just, it was eye candy and ear candy all around. And I was perfectly fine with that. And I, I know that with a lot of our other Westworld episodes, we've had a lot of, you know, you know speculation and we think there's a lot of, um, just that there's like not necessarily Easter eggs, but there's a a lot of um subliminal stuff and um you know foreshadowing and you know just all these you know different things that we have to kind of read into. And this one was just you know kind of sit back, relax. We're gonna put on a show for you episode, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, I think it definitely deviates from some of the mystery. Like, we had a lot of mystery, and we had, like, a lot of reveal and mystery in last week's um, episode. But then in this one, I think there's still some interesting stuff going on. The parallels between Maeve and Dolores really are uh, so evident, and there's so much thematically about reflection in this episode, as it's been a theme of the entire season. This idea of reflection, of, of you know, looking into a mirror and seeing a, uh, an image of yourself, that is something that is so evident uh, in this particular season, and we get a little bit more of that symbolism in this episode as well. Oh, yeah, I mean, especially in... It's all over the Shogun world scenes, which, yeah, God, I loved it so much. <laughs> I agree. So let's get into our recap of the episode. And really, since we only had a couple of different uh, character groupings in this episode, we're going to take it piece by piece. So let's start with uh, the opening chunk at the Mesa in the control room. Apparently, it's in the aftermath of something that has gone down. Uh, there are bodies strewn about. 
And we do get a little bit of information that the hosts are, about a third of them, have no real data in there. They're virgin, as the uh, text says. So I think that's kind of an interesting piece. What did you make of that opening scene uh, there and, and learning that bit of information? Well, you said that you know something has gone down. Well, from what I gathered from it, I thought that this was them starting to drain the valley. We saw all of these bodies that were floating in the water um, an episode or two ago. And I think this was them extracting those bodies because we saw Teddy laying there in the pile. So I think yeah. that's what that that's what that is. That's what's gone down is that, you know, whatever this yeah. flooding it's is. It's definitely the two weeks later timeline. Right. So they have extracted the hosts and it looks like some people that were in that. And uh, they're starting to kind of try and figure out what's going on. Now, as far as the ones that have been wiped and then you see what we think is Bernard possibly still not saying anything. Just kind of observing, looking at things, looking a little confused. Um, I think he might have something to do with that. I agree. I agree. I think he might. He he certainly may. Another thing that we see in this particular opening sequence is we get another shot of them removing that mind piece. Uh, I I can't remember if they what they were called and the, they call it in production. They call them pearls or whatever. It is basically the the core, the brain of the hosts. So we're seeing it again. We've seen it several times this season where they take out one of these white, um, you know, core processors that these hosts have. Now I'm assuming that we've seen this visual gag enough to where the next time around, the next time we see this thing, it's going to be one of those red cores. Right. I just feel like that's going to happen. Yeah, because, you know, we've seen the white ones a couple times, and then we saw red for the first time last week, and I just can't help it. Every time I see them, I think that they look like cupcakes. Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> or um, ice cream but, cones. But the, the, the designation between the two is that red seems to indicate that it is just a host, whereas, or I'm sorry, white seems to indicate that it's just a host, whereas red seems to indicate that it is this kind of host-human hybrid thing that they were trying with uh, James Delos. Right. And do you get a sense that they are suspicious of Bernard? Not at all. I I really don't. I think he's... I think we are, but I, I don't feel that any of the Delos... Uh, people that are there, they're, they're thinking that he's in shock or something. He's been through this traumatic event and they're just kind of, they're not thinking anything of it. So no, I think he's completely flying under the radar. Yeah. I also think some of the dialogue in this scene is kind of like almost fourth wall breaking in a way where they're almost speaking for the audience. It's like, when we find out, we will know how all these disparate pieces came together for this whole story. Right. So I feel like they're they're kind of speaking as the audience in that scene. Yeah, so we know that in that two weeks later timeline, they're dredging the river, and Teddy's body is, is there among many other bodies, and we still don't know what's going on with Bernard. So not a lot of movement there. Um, I think it does kind of tie into Teddy's story, because we can talk next about the Teddy and Dolores pairing, because they have... 
they have a, an interesting st- story in this particular episode. Uh, I know that there is a little bit of frustration out there in the fan community about what exactly Dolores and Teddy are up to. Uh, that that you know they're they seem their story seems a little bit stale at some places. I haven't necessarily found that, um, but I found this to be a really interesting moment between the two of them. Yeah, I I thought something different was going to happen uh, with them. I mean, eventually something later on did happen, but then there was something that really kind of threw me off um, in their last scene. Um, but yeah, earlier, uh, when they were talking and, and, you know, she takes, I don't remember exactly what happens first. I know that you have the timeline and everything there, but they ended up going to this location where they've been to before and they have this discussion and, you know, that's overlooking an area. And I thought for certain when she's talking about that whole thing with the, blue tongue or you know whatever this disease was and she's asking him what he would do in that situation i thought for certain she was going to kill him right there hmm interesting i didn't get that vibe i did get the vibe that she was maybe a little bit disappointed or maybe just uh sad because of this sense of duty that she has where she you know believes that that she is this kind of revolutionary leader who you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs that seems to be her philosophy and that becomes more and more evident in this episode in their earlier scene when we first see them in this episode we kind of get the feeling that they are you know going back to Sweetwater because the thing that they needed was that train and that they're planning on taking the train to the Mesa to try to go reclaim Abernathy that was the vibe that I got from that right I did too And then we get that scene with them in the Mariposa, where I really like what the actress who is playing Clementine is doing this season. She now has become woke, or rather, she is kind of shook right now. Right. Because now she's kind of seeing things from another perspective, and yeah, she's completely shook by it. But, you know, keeping in mind that whole idea about mirror reflections she's literally looking at a reflection of herself she's looking at new clementine right and she doesn't seem to be able to reconcile the idea that she's looking at another version of herself almost like james delos when he was looking in the mirror last week right it's almost like she is in in her she's rejecting it and so, hence the being shook by it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's shaken her to her core. Yeah. Uh, when we do get that Dolores and Teddy scene where they're talking about the blue tongue, that was something that was mentioned by uh, Abernathy in a previous episode as well. But, you know, you got the sense here that given what we've seen already back in the first episode of this season, that this seems to be a conversation that may lead to whatever that end result is. This idea that Dolores is getting out there is that maybe um, you have to be a little bit ruthless if you're going to be successful. It's kind of that Rutua Fortuna kind of thing. Like, you have to be able to be ruthless when the the situation calls for it. And I think that is what 
she was kind of sizing Teddy up for in that conversation. How would you handle this situation? Because my father would handle it this way, and I am my father's daughter. Well, and see, you know, when I first mentioned this a moment ago, I said, you know, I I thought for certain that she was going to kill him right there. And, you know, she doesn't. And the fact that she didn't, I knew right away. I said, no, that's a threat now. What she just told him in this whole story, she's threatening him. She is, without directly saying anything, letting him know that she's disappointed in him. She saw what happened, what he did. He's going to be something that she's going to have to sacrifice to save everybody else. Mm. Because he's not along the same lines that she is. That's I'm like, that was a threat to him. I didn't necessarily think it was a threat threat i thought of it more as like a fidelity test in the same way that they were giving james delos the fidelity test uh last week i thought they were it was like a test of of teddy's fidelity in a way like is he willing to go to that you know to that extreme is he willing to do the cutthroat thing if needed no because he's already proven to her that he won't because he didn't follow her directions the last or the uh, two episodes ago so right. she already knows that he's not going to. So, she, you know, she gives him this scenario. And she's like, okay, in this scenario, what would you do? And he answered basically with what he did before. You know, he, you know, was playing the good guy. And she's like, no, what we did is, you know, we had to sacrifice. We, we burned them and, you know, for the good of the rest of the herd. And you have to make that sacrifice. So I thought because of that, she was going to kill him right there. But she doesn't. And I was like, that's a threat. She's letting him know, you know, I'm going to have to sacrifice you because you have proven that you're, I need to get rid of you to save everybody else because you're not in line with this. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm not necessarily buying it as a threat, but I see where you're coming from on it. Um, but Yeah, but I with think- what she does later on, it was totally a threat. But she didn't really give him a choice to do anything. She didn't give him a... It, it wasn't a do this or else. Like, it's... No, like, she didn't have to. He's already proven himself to be against her because she saw him go against her orders and let those other people go. So he already made his choice as far as she is concerned. Yeah, I mean, possibly. I'm, I'm not... I, I don't know that she knows she's going to kill him at that point. I don't know that... I'm not convinced that she's fully aware that she... Not kill him, or that she's going to um, essentially recreate Teddy. A d- different Teddy as we've known him. Not kill him, sorry. But I don't know that she's there yet. Does that make sense? No, because I feel that she totally is. Because of what... Especially after what we see with their last scene together in this episode. Mm. Cause she flat out tells him you're not on the same level as the rest of us and has him carried away. Yeah. And I'm wondering how much of that is this, uh, this, you know, third of the hosts have these kind of virgin minds. Now uh, I also think the phrase virgin is very interesting to use because Teddy and Dolores finally got it on. And one would assume that that's probably the first time that that has ever happened for those two. Because... Well, not for her. Maybe... Well, for the two of them, yes, but not for her. For these two characters that have this kind of, like... 
I don't know, star-crossed lovers kind of storyline, that this was like the first right. time that that ever happened for them, for them together. Oh, yeah, for the two of them together, probably, yeah. Yeah, you know, we get we get the, the actual, like, sex scene between the two of them, which I actually think is really, like, tastefully done. I thought it was executed really well. Um, you know, it's just a lot of, you know, a lot of close-up shots, very intimate, but I thought they did a good job of portraying it without being gratuitous. Yeah, I don't really have anything to say about it. I just, I really don't like uh, Dolores and Teddy together, and... I was like, yeah, whatever. She just totally used them for her own pleasure, well, which I'm okay with that. I think it's because, in a way, they're so tropey. They're so tropey and cliched as a pairing. The, right. the farmer's daughter and the, you know, the, the noble cowboy. They, yeah, it's boring. Yeah, and I, I do think they're somewhat boring. And I think that this is a culmination of their relationship as it existed, but then also an end to that relationship as it existed. I think the show itself is consciously aware of how tedious that relationship is, and they really need to do something with Teddy, and that's what kind of gets us to that scene in the barn. Which, again, getting these Game of Thrones vibes from the show so much lately, these kind of like, you know, these these complete and total betrayals of these characters... You know, I'm wondering, um, this whole thing with Dolores's use of sex in this scene, I was just thinking that when her and, um, William had sex, it wasn't long after that, that he really started to turn into the man in black, right? Ah, yes. So I'm wondering... If that's how Dolores sees, I don't know, if she sees sex not necessarily as an expression of love, but almost as, like, an expression of power. Hmm. And so you that's have sex kind with Dolores, you're using. going down the, the dark path. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's what William did with Dolores, but now that's what Dolores is doing with um, Teddy. Hmm. She's now in the other role. She's now using that as a means of power over Teddy. Yeah, except that that, w that would make sense if she had didn't have every other power over him already. Like, she doesn't need that. She already has it. No, she, no, she doesn't. But that's how she would view that. Because that's what happened with her and William, kind of. Yeah, a little bit, but at the same time, like, she already has the ability to forcibly change him. So it doesn't really matter. And she, if, if, if what you're saying is true, that she was threatening him and that she already knew what she was going to do with him to begin with, it wouldn't so make yeah, sense. So yeah, have your way them with to... them before you do them in. I think that's probably more like it. That's probably more like it. I think it's probably more like, this was the fantasy, this was the story, this was the fairy tale, let's live it out. And kind of have, like, a mournful end to it. Because now I'm going to change this fucker and turn him into a weapon. We don't know what they're changing, but we can assume. Right. Or, I wonder, maybe it was like... Maybe this is going to spark something else in me. Maybe him and I having this connection, maybe it will make me change my the way that I feel about how things are going to go with him. Because she's... Right. You know, threatening him and, okay, well, let's have this really intimate moment together. 
maybe somehow it will make me change my mind and feel some kind of connection with them. And afterwards, she's like, no, you're still gone. It was That didn't do anything for me. <laughs> right. Now, we don't know what exactly they're going to change his settings to, but I assume that they're going to make him much more violent, much more cruel, and much less compassionate. Do you think so, or do you think it is he's going to be wiped clean? He's one of the ones that they wipe clean and, and hence, in essence, becomes virginized. Well, that's the thing that we don't quite know, is if that process of being, like, wiped clean is something that is something that is done as a systems thing or is that a byproduct of achieving consciousness yeah i don't know oh i i hope it's more of a byproduct of achieving consciousness because if it's not we're really deviating from the story of season one yeah, I I actually like that, but if that were true, wouldn't then a couple when we saw um Elsie and Bernard when she was checking his code, wouldn't there have been everything gone from his code then? It, because he's woke now. Maybe. Um, but we also, I think, are given enough evidence within the show to draw the conclusion that the process of, of achieving consciousness might be gradual. True. And there are little pieces yeah. along the way. Yeah. I think the big takeaway from the Teddy and Dolores stuff is that Dolores is unafraid to take total control like she is unafraid to take she is a by any means necessary type of revolutionary and i think that is the thing that is being defined each and every week in her character and i think part of the reason why that's so evident in this episode is because it is in stark contrast to what mave is doing Right. And the the vibe that I'm getting from Dolores and Maeve now is very Professor X and Magneto. Whereas you oh, have... Oh, I love that comparison. Like, Dolores is more of the Magneto type, by any means necessary, you know. Right. Whereas Maeve is more... She's willing to fight when she has to fight. She's willing to be righteous. She's willing to go to war if she has to. But uh, she is also somebody who is courteous and kind and compassionate. Right. Oh, I love that comparison. I like that a lot. Because there are some other there are some other things that Maeve encounters in this episode. And, um, as we kind of talk a little bit about Shogun World, I want to bring up some of those contrasts that I noticed. So... We do finally, at long last, get to see Shogun World. We realize that Maeve's voice commands don't work. We get information how it's based on the Edo period, and the reason her voice commands didn't work is because she said them in the wrong language, which seems a bit weird to me. Um, but all that kind of cool world building helps us get a, a feel for how violent and dangerous Shogun World is. 
I loved these scenes so much. Yeah. So much. I, I wish the entire episode was nothing but that. Yeah. I mean, the the, the painted black uh, robbery of the Mariposa in Shogun World, the kind of mirror image of that, is so awesome. It's not exactly a shot-for-shot recreation, but it's damn close. You would be surprised how close it actually is. Like, the shot of the blacksmith is there. Yeah, camera angles, the way things are are, um, edited together, just perfect. And I love the fact that in the middle of it, uh, Maeve is just like, you copied this. And then the, the, um, story writer, Delos guys, he's like, it's like, well, wh- not exactly. I mean, what do you expect to write 300 stories in, you know, three weeks or whatever, three days or whatever it was. I just thought that was such a nice and, and nice little bow to wrap up that as to why they were the same. I loved seeing that. Yeah. And I do also love how Armistice kind of immediately, is like supportive of her doppelbot. Yes. <laughs> you know, she's like behind you trying to give her direction to help her out. The cool contrast of of her having a snake versus Armistice or uh Armistice having a snake versus her doppelbot having a dragon on her face. I thought that was really cool too. So all those great little details. The fact that the Ronin was kind of the opposite of Hector, I thought that was really awesome. Just those mirror images, uh, they're, they're really so prevalent this season. And another great detail about these scenes that are taking place in Shogun World are these tight in facial shots that you get of the characters. These like living portrait kind of shots. And that is right out of the, Akira Kurosawa visual dictionary because that was the kind of shot that he was the master of and I thought the visual style was such an homage to his work that it almost felt like uh, this whole episode was like a tribute oh it it completely was I mean that was one of the things that um, Nolan and Joy had even mentioned because Nolan I guess he's a huge fan of the Kurosawa film. So yeah, this was completely an homage to that. Um, another way that they mirrored the characters, and I thought this was brilliant. If you, if you haven't watched any of the, um, uh, into the episodes, or I forgot what, how, what they call them, um, uh, on HBO, but these like behind the scenes, little tiny short vignettes that they do on each episode. And, uh, one of the things that they mentioned for this episode is how, they were mirrored not only in just that scene and kind of what happens, but also in their costuming. And uh, you can see that reflection there, like where the um, Hector's uh, equivalent has like the little strips of black leather on his kimono. And, uh, you know, that's something that's definitely not traditional, but then it, it uh, reflects Hector's costume, which was all black leather, and it was oh so good and so subtle, and uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, that is really great. I mean, all the attention to detail. I think my only big issue with the stuff that happened in Shogun World is that a lot of it happened at night, so you're not able to see everything in its full kind of well-lit glory, which I think would maybe be my only criticism of it. Yeah, that's always a criticism that we have for fight scenes. I yeah. mean, take it to any of the DC movies and 
you know, stuff that it always seems kind of like a crutch. But, you know, I understand the ninja, the ninja part of it. I can understand that happening at night because that's very classic for them. Um, But, I mean, even then, I will say this, even though it was at night, I still felt that it wasn't completely in shadow. Like, you could still really see what was going on, even though you had a lot of the main players in those scenes, like the ninjas that were wearing black. You could still see what was happening. I think it was because their fight... Their fight choreography and what they were doing was so clean, and they didn't do one of my biggest pet peeves, which is to have a lot of really quick camera movements, a lot of jump cuts. They kind of stayed still so you could take in what was happening. And I'm so glad we yeah. got to see that because the the fight choreography for especially that ninja fight scene was so good. I'm glad we got to see it. Well, and Hiroyuki Sonata is the actor who plays Musashi, the Ronin, and he's one of the great swordsmen in film. He's a he's a very famous actor. He's been in a whole bunch of stuff, uh, and so I think when you have somebody with that kind of talent, you have to you have to utilize them. Now, his character also Musashi is actually based on a real life um, a real life swordsman. Oh, do tell. Yeah, so he was actually um, a, a swordsman. He was a philosopher. He was a ronin. Uh, he had 61 duels and was never defeated. So he is somebody who actually is like a, a historical figure that he's playing. Oh, all right. So, and not only do we have Sonata in this in this show as well, we also have Akane. And I love Akane's character, played by Rinko Kikuchi. Yeah, so what else? Has she been in some other things? She's been in some other stuff. Um, Pacific Rim is something that a lot of modern audiences would know her from. Yeah, but I love Akane. I think that character is really great. She is a perfect mirror for Maeve. Uh, and the makeup on her, the, the geisha makeup, is so phenomenally done. Like, every portrait of her is stunning. I mean, not just the makeup, but again, with the costuming, the when she does her dance, the way that they did this beautiful dip dye on the silk that she's wearing. And then, of course, the hairstyles that they have and the wigs that they're wearing for throughout this are just gorgeous. It's so lush and beautiful and... Um, again, like I said, I just, I just wanted the episode to be all of this and it's making me want to go back and watch, (laughs) um, a lot of Akira Kurosawa movies because I'm like, I just want more of this. I just love it. Oh yeah. Well, you know, what's really funny too is, is how much of this episode is a homage to Kurosawa. One of the films that Kurosawa made was a film called Ran. And Ran is a retelling of King Lear. And King Lear is something that has been mentioned multiple times in Westworld. So that's kind of a fun connection there. Oh, that's cool. Uh, we also have the main theme of Westworld played on the uh, Samisen. That kind of wind instrument, which I think sounds really neat. Yeah, that was really cool. I loved, again, Ramin Jawadi did such... 
a good job in this episode with the music and the covers and the um, different genre takes with, you know, familiar music that we've heard before. So good. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be so much fun to be able to do kind of a sci-fi slash western slash samurai genre all in one. It, It must be a lot of fun to do those kind of musical transitions. Oh, yeah, especially when you're covering the stones and Wu-Tang Clan within it. That's so cool. Yeah, that was great. Uh, I also love the way Akane kills this emissary. She just kind of stabs him in the eye. She just has this ferocity. And I love the contrast of this kind of gentle geisha, but with this kind of ferociousness underneath. Oh, yeah, and that was just a taste of what was to come, because... Good lord. I think this was probably one of the most gory and graphic episodes that we've seen with Westworld. This was intense, a lot of the stuff they did, and it was so good. Yeah, there is a lot, because we get that ninja attack, and we see Maeve convince one of them to basically stab himself in the eye. Another bit of visual imagery that reminded me of Game of Thrones, where you have the hound in the inn, and he stabs the dude in the eye. Right. And, I mean, all the great details. The samurai armor looks awesome. It's this really cool black armor that they have on. I thought that was really great. Um, We do also get this beautiful scene where they're going to see the Shogun, and they're having this whole kind of ruse that they're trying to pull off that doesn't work. All the dudes have cut their ears off. But again, you know, just great setting, you know, all kinds of beautiful stuff happening there with costuming and and set decoration and all that good stuff. You also have, I don't know if you noticed, but the Shogun's banner kind of had that weird hexagonal interlocking thing going on. It's like almost oh, like a, a kind of a version of that. It's It's not the exact same logo, but it is very evocative of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Like, they're they're not hexagons. They're more circular and wispy, but they are definitely, like, interlocked. There's, like, an interlocked uh, symbol in there. Interesting. I know there's one other thing that uh, they mentioned in the behind the scenes that I thought was really cool that I definitely would not have known this uh, without them saying so, was that the dialect of Japanese that they were using was very, I I don't want to say ancient, but like classic, you know, it's very, it's not a modern Japanese that they were speaking. So I thought that was really cool and a very nice touch as well. Yeah. um, Sonata, the actor who played the Ronin, he is their cultural consultant on the, on the show as well. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. So he was, responsible for kind of the the kind of cultural accuracy of it which i thought was really nice yeah one of the the other great things here that i wanted to talk about too is that scene as we're starting to see Maeve, like when, when she uses her mind to get the ninja to kill himself we're starting to see this new power developing within Maeve, and then we see that apparently she can communicate with akane as well And she is trying to give her this gift that she calls freedom, this kind of gift of freedom that she gives her. And Akane rejects it. And, you know, she says some things are too precious, you know. Um, 
and Maeve allows her to reject it, which is the exact opposite of Dolores. Dolores in this episode will bend Teddy to her will, whereas Maeve gives Akane a choice. Right. Yeah. And I think that... Dolores, you don't get a choice. It's either what she wants or nothing at all. Yeah. That's the contrast. That's the... That's the the thing that we're seeing kind of establishing these two as maybe the potential hero and villain of this show. But, you know, again, we don't really know if that's how it's going to play out. That almost feels too predictable in a way. But we're seeing those worldviews um, becoming very, those characteristics of these two people uh, becoming very well identified. And I thought that was the big parallel of this episode. I think that was the big storytelling moment, is this idea that that Maeve is somebody who is willing to offer liberation to those who want it, whereas Dolores is going to make you be free in order to help achieve her goal. So you're just seeing different worldviews. I'm wondering, though, because Maeve has this power to be able to manipulate others, whether with her words or now with her mind. And, you know, she gives these people a choice. I wonder if, you know, she can, you know, she, as you said, she's able to give the gift of being awake. And so because of that, you know, she's going to offer you a choice. I'm wondering with, because Dolores doesn't have that. And so Dolores is looking for those and kind of testing those that could possibly be awake or not. And so she kind of tests them. And if they don't pass the test, then she deems deems them not worthy. But I don't, she doesn't have the ability to control like Maeve does. And I think, I think then it's also showing a different, I think it's also showing a different dynamic with power that Maeve is incredibly powerful, but she is, um, she's more reserved in how she can use it or she has more control over it. Whereas Dolores is power by will of force, you know, and, and she makes that decision, but she doesn't have the same power that Maeve does. Yeah, and, and I think you make a good point where talking about what Dolores deems, who Dolores deems worthy, uh, or, you know, I think that's a really good kind of, um, distinct, um, a good way to differentiate between these two. And I think what's also interesting about this episode is that through Akane and Sakura, Maeve is able to see a mirror of her relationship with her daughter as well. Whereas Dolores right. and Teddy, as they're kind of going out and they're, they're, you know, talking about this, you know, whole blue tongue thing, in a way, it's Dolores reflecting upon her narrative with Teddy. And they're both kind of looking at their narratives. Dolores doesn't find any purpose in that narrative with Teddy at all, whereas Maeve kind of finds some purpose in it when she's looking at that reflection of her old narrative. So they're taking different things right. from similar situations. I'm now wondering 
you know, if we have a meeting again of Dolores and Maeve, you know, because we said it before, we think their paths are going to cross again. And, you know, Dolores is, is, is so strong um, with her power. And now Maeve, you know, she says she's got this new voice. She has this new power. I'm thinking she's the only one that's going to be able to compete against Dolores. And I'm thinking that Maeve would be the one that would come out on top of that because of this mind control thing that she's got. Would that work on Dolores? Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because um, we, we really don't know who is truly conscious. We, we know that this is a journey towards consciousness. We know it's kind of the first step. And we also know that I, I don't think what Maeve is doing, I don't think this whole thing is is mystical by any stretch of the imagination. I actually think it was teed up earlier in the season when Bernard talked about how all of the hosts are connected via mesh networks and how they can pass information that way through those mesh networks. I think that's what she's tapping into whenever she can um, affect the other hosts around her in the same way that Bernard is able to query the hosts in a certain area around, you know, to pass information. I think that's what she's utilizing. Well, I think it's also akin to what Ford was able to do. You know, he had voice commands that he could use, or the humans had voice commands that they could use. But then Ford was able to use just, like, simple hand gestures or something, or just think yeah. of something, and he was able to uh, command them as well. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's an interesting point, too, that, that she has that ability that Ford also seemed to have. Yeah, very much so. So, yeah, I think that... You know, again, there are just these enormous parallels between Maeve and Dolores, and they just seem to be on these divergent paths where, you know, Maeve is in Westworld trying to find her daughter. That is a simple, contained story, whereas Dolores is like global domination, you know? So they have, there are these two characters that have these kind of parallel tracks that they're on, and we keep seeing them develop more and more and diverging further and further away from each other. I'm really curious, though, I mean, again, talking about the compare and contrast with Dolores and Maeve, where Maeve definitely is that more sympathetic and and understanding. Dolores, even though she's she seems to be looking for others that are, you know, conscious, it really seems like she's just looking for minions. Because it seems to me that... Um, and just through this episode, and I, I was really questioning whether or not Teddy was conscious. And I'm thinking through some of the things that happened and were said that, you know, Teddy is on that path that gets happening to him. But I'm thinking because, and, and Dolores has recognized that he's, you know, starting to wake up. But he's not on the same plane as her. And because he won't be that minion of hers, she has to force it on him. So I'm wondering yeah. how much she's really, really interested in somebody being able to be conscious. Like, no, you have to be conscious, but you also have to be loyal to me. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think one more metaphor out there, or one more parallel uh, out there, is how the metaphor of the blue tongue thing kind of 
parallels the mother-daughter relationship between Akane and, and Sakura. And whereas Dolores is totally okay with burning down everything. Again, can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Maeve is, Maeve is the one there to protect the eggs. You know, she is willing to risk herself right. to protect other people. You know, so right. I think that is, again, a, another one of those great uh, contrasts between these characters. Uh, another thing here is the Shogun who kills Sakura, and then we end up with that whole dance, uh, the 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 red dance, as it were, the Akane doing her thing. And I think that scene is just incredible. I love it. I knew exactly what was going to happen because it's teed up pretty well, but the actual visual of it is so impressive. Yeah, so good. And how fucking amazing is it that it was set to a Wu-Tang Clan song? Yeah, it's such a great touch. It was amazing. <laughs> it's like the perfect, it's actually like the perfect Wu-Tang Clan song for that. Well, it was driving me crazy because I'm like, I know this melody. Where have I heard this before? And it was driving me crazy. And I couldn't figure it out until after I had watched it a second time. I was like, oh, that's what it is. Okay. It finally finally got it now so i heard good. somewhere and i i have not been able to confirm this i heard somewhere that the actual dance that she is performing is an interpretive dance of the events of the show up to this point oh i i cannot i, I haven't been able to confirm that or or be able to like dissect it for myself that's just something that i heard which i think would be really cool uh if that is true that would be cool. Now I want to go back and watch it again with a with that in mind. Huh. All right. And I love the elegance of the way she performs. And again, it's that contrast, right? It's the elegance and beauty, but the ferocity underneath. And I feel like that's that's such a, a commonality for some of the female characters in this show, like Dolores, like Maeve. They have this kind of um, this kind of elegance, but then they also have this ferocity about them as well. And we get that with Akane where, you know, she's doing this beautiful dance. And the, the great bit of visual imagery is not only does she stab the Shogun in the neck, but that just that little blood spatter that runs across her chin, I think is really, really yeah. cool. And it just shows how something beautiful can be uh, so violent as well. Oh my gosh, the end of this dance, and yes, when she kills him, and you see her in focus, and then you see his body stand up with half of his head dangling to the side, and take like a step and a half. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. Amazing yeah. the effects that they did in this episode so good and the other thing that i love about this and this is going to sound really weird like it's a weird sentence for a person to say i've never seen a head cut <laughs> off quite in that way before right like there's like a little bit of sawing yeah. a little bit of slicing it's 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 like she's trying to like cut up a chicken but she has to like hack through some parts and cut through it like she is growing to t i've never seen a head cut off in that way before and i like that i like seeing things i've never seen before yeah, how fucked up are the people that came up with that? And I love them. Yeah. What's interesting, too, is that every character is supposedly a mirror of somebody in Westworld. So 
you know, you have Hector and the Ronin, you have Armistice and her Doppelbot, you have Akane and Maeve. So who is the Shogun? Who does he represent in Westworld? Well, it was funny. Well, it was funny. I was watching it with a friend of mine and and my friend thought, oh, he's he's the equivalent of the man in black. I was like, mm. yeah, but the man in black's not a host. So how could he be the mirror of the man in black? So, um, but it was interesting, though, because they did, um, there were things that he was doing to Sakura, for example, that were giving Maeve, like, flashbacks to the stuff the man in black did to her daughter. Right. So, um, but, I mean, if we're, we're strictly talking hosts, I'm, I don't know. Who do you think? I don't know. I think the man in black is a really interesting choice because, you know, he does stab her in the stomach and it is, it does bring up those memories. And I think that does kind of feel like who that might be because also the Ronin is like elite and gets whatever he wants, has this kind of unfettered power, kind of the way the the guests have. So it may oh, not you mean be the like Shogun? a, yeah, it may not be like a direct comparison it may not be like a direct correlation but he does seem to have some of those kind of characteristics yeah the only other thing too that i would say about it that that i kind of i kind of wish that the reveal that mave had the ability to basically mentally communicate with the other hosts i kind of wish they would have saved the reveal for that moment at the end where they're about to kill her and akane um, well... Like, had they teased it? I was kind of hoping they would have teased it where something, some weird unknown thing happens with that ninja who impales himself. And then you get, like, a more fully sussed out reveal of it later on in that moment. I thought that would have had a bigger impact. Well, I think that's kind of what they were going for, even though the thing with that... with. The ninja, the first time we see it, was maybe a little bit too on the nose for it was too obvious. So um, I think I think maybe that's what they were going for, but they wanted us to be in on it a little bit more than you liked. Yeah, because I feel like that does kind of undercut some of the maybe sense of danger that you would like to feel in that final scene. Well, and you know, like I said, when I was watching it with my friend. We were like, well, why didn't she do that sooner? Why did she wait and and until the very end, you know, for for her to do this, you know, because well, she could have done something sooner and and saved Sakura, but she didn't. Yeah, but if you learn something new, you don't necessarily know how to like wield it right away, right? Like you don't like you may be able to to to. It's it's like Luke Skywalker, like, the, he was able to pick up a lightsaber and fight off Darth Vader, but he wasn't, like, super proficient as he could have been. Well, and I think that that goes against, or, or goes along with what the show did, which with what you were saying you were disappointed in. You know, she was at first just testing it out with that ninja. That was one person. Yeah. And she was able to get him to stab himself in the eye, which is pretty fucked up. So then she was like, okay, I can do this. And so she wasn't sure if she was going to be able to do it with all of these people at the same time, 
or all these other hosts at the same time. So that was maybe her hesitation to use it again. And then she finally used it again and was able to overcome all of them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's the reveal that she's able to use it on an entire group of people as opposed to just one person. But at the same time, that still feels that still falls a little bit flat for me. Hmm. I didn't get that same feeling. The other thing that that is interesting to me that is this kind of cliffhanger ending where you see this army of samurai running at, you know, Maeve and Sizemore and those guys, and she picks up the the sword and she says, you know, I've, I've discovered a new voice. Now it's time to to start listening to it or something to that extent. Like, is she going to pick up that sword and slash all of those samurai to bits? If so, I'd love to see it. But then my next question will be, well, why not just use your, use your, you know, mental commands that you can use now to just shut that whole army down? Well, I think that's what she's alluding to. Cause, you know, she says, you know, I, I've, I've, I've got a new weapon or whatever. Now let's, now's the time to use it. And, but at the same time, it's like, okay, she used it on those. Now we have this whole bigger group. So now she's going to have to use it even more than what she did. Okay. Let's see. Let me stretch this as much as I can, but let me have a little insurance policy by having this katana just in case I need it. I mean, you would assume that she would be able to adjust her own setting. So if she wanted to become a ferocious fighter, she probably could. Yeah, it's like Neo from the Matrix. Yeah, like she I, could probably I, totally I know jujitsu. <laughs> yeah. Now, I would love to see Tandy Newton just go cut the hell out of a bunch of samurai. I would pay to watch that any day of the week. Well, you don't have to pay for it. Well, you have to pay for your HBO... Uh, subscription and just have to wait next week (laughs) another great thing in this final scene too is after akane cuts the head off the ronin the reaction shots are just amazing sizemore's face and felix and sylvester like their expressions are amazing everybody is in kind of a stunned silence that this geisha this beautiful delicate geisha just sawed the face off of the shogun i thought that was just great the reaction shot is awesome Oh yeah, the most gruesome, what the most gruesome way she could have taken him out. I mean, she didn't just like stab him, you know, like she did in the tea house where the that one guy, the messenger guy or whatever, she just stabbed in the eye. You know, it, this was incredibly gruesome. So yeah, and of course, I I love it. Yeah. Now, do you think that we will see much more of Shogun World? I know we had a cliffhanger this week, which kind of suggests that we will see more of Shogun World probably next week. But do you think that Shogun World will become a regular part of the show? No, I don't. Because, um, you know, they mentioned in this episode that, what was it, Silver Lake or whatever it was that that they were originally going to try to go to. And Sizemore mentions, he's like, yeah, that's her cornerstone, but there's also an access point there at Silver Lake. So I think they are eventually going to go to that access point because Sizemore says that's their out because that's another thing that Maeve says too is like, okay, we're going to do this little thing, but then we need to go look, try and find my daughter. Right. So I think we'll spend a little bit more time there, see however she she deals with these uh, warriors that are coming from that or coming for them. And then I don't think we're going to see much of Shogun World again. Hmm. That That's sad. Because I would like to see more of Akane also. No, I would too. Um, I, 
maybe she'll change her mind. She uh, said that she didn't want to take Maeve's offer because some things were too precious, but now Sakura's gone. So maybe yeah. she'll change her mind. I was getting the feeling she might take her own life. Hmm. But I'm not sure. I would love to see more of Shogun World. I would love to see more of it. Uh, but who knows? Who knows what the other three parks are? You never know in uh, in Westworld. But I would definitely like to see more of it. I'm looking forward to next week's episode. I think this episode, it doesn't give us as much to speculate on. Uh, but I do think there's there is stuff in here that moves the characters forward. It develops the characters a little bit more. We got a lot of character development out of Maeve here, and a lot out of Dolores as well. So I think that um, while you were not talking about the mysteries and the speculation as much, we do have more important pieces about Maeve and Dolores that we know. So looking forward into next week, again, what did you think of the preview for next week? Specifically, the moment between... Dolores and Bernard question mark? I don't know. I, I really don't know. It certainly seems to be similar to what we talked about last week. Like maybe that is something that is happening at a at a different time and maybe that's not necessarily Arnold as we were led to believe at the opening scene. What kind of surprises me about that though is that they would reveal that in a preview for next week's show. It did me too. I was kind of shocked and I thought, well, does that just seal the deal with the speculation that we had? Or is our speculation so left field that they feel that they could throw that in there, meaning that it would just confuse people and wondering what they mean? Yeah, maybe there's some double switcheroo coming that we don't know about. That's right. Yeah. All right, so you guys have heard our thoughts on Westworld Season 2, Episode 5, Akane no Mai. But we'd like to hear yours, so hit us up on Facebook and Twitter, at NerdFlixChill. You can also find our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and if you are listening on one of those platforms, go ahead and throw us a five-star review. We also post our episodes at lrmonline.com. We wanted to thank all of you for joining us. We appreciate you listening. Till next time, may the force be with you because the night is dark and full of terrors. <laughs>